God is called by the Bible the Mikveh Yisrael, the hope of Israel. And the Mishnaic sage Rabbi Akiva famously noted that the word Mikveh, hope, can also be read as a reference to a Mikveh, a purifying pool of water. God stands ready to purify us as long as we have the courage to examine our faults and engage in repentance and achieve thereby resplendent purity. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 170, Hope, Purity, and Sanctity. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In March of 1863, Abraham Lincoln attended a performance of Shakespeare's Henry IV, Part I, with James Hackett in the role of Falstaff. Soon after, the actor sent the president a copy of a book that he had written, along with an appreciative note. Lincoln responded with a reflection about his own love of Shakespeare, a fascinating window into the mind of a man known for his love of language and oratory, who was, at the moment, struggling to make sense of all that was occurring in the country. Lincoln wrote, Some of Shakespeare's plays I have never read, whilst others I have gone over perhaps as frequently as any unprofessional reader. Among the latter are Lear, Richard III, Henry VIII, Hamlet, and especially Macbeth. I think none equals Macbeth. It is wonderful. As Michael Andreg notes in his book Lincoln and Shakespeare, many scholars are fascinated with the fact that Lincoln loved Macbeth. After all, it is a tale of a warrior gone wrong, featuring a character utterly unlike Lincoln in every way. While there is much to suggest here, I wish to put forward the possibility that what drew Lincoln to the play Macbeth in 1863 was its themes, sin, guilt, punishment, themes that he was pondering during that terrible year. At that point, the Union cause was going very badly, and the two victories later in 63 at Vicksburg and Gettysburg were yet to occur. And what Lincoln was pondering in every waking hour, I think, is why God had brought these events upon America and what form of repentance God wished of America in response to the devastation. Thus, Macbeth's discussion of sin might have been of enormous interest to Lincoln. But, whereas Macbeth is a tale only of tragedy and misdeed, the approach that Lincoln ultimately eloquently expressed through his words are at their heart most truly inspired, not by the bard, but by the Bible. In chapter 36, Ezekiel returns again to the themes of sin and repentance. But unlike his previous discussion in chapter 18, where his focus was on the possibility of atonement undoing the threat of punishment, here the prophet focuses on a different aspect of sin, the fact that it defiles. Thus, verse 16, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own way and by their doings. Sin, in other words, defiles. It renders the soul and the sanctity of the Holy Land impure. And the impurity brought about by sin is a major theme in Macbeth. Thus, when the title character murders the king of Scotland and returns drenched in blood, he is initially overwrought, while Lady Macbeth is remorseless and scolds him for what she sees as a lack of manliness. She says, Why worthy fain you do unbend your noble strength to think so brain-sickly of things? Go, get some water, and wash this filthy witness from your hand. What to do about the blood on the hands of a murderer? At this point, Lady Macbeth breezily says to her spouse that it presents no problem at all. A little water will wash it off. She then tells him, give me the daggers. And in so doing, the blood of the murder now gets on herself as well. Meanwhile, Macbeth feels that there is too much blood for water to wash off his sin, saying, will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? But as the play proceeds, Macbeth grows more and more evil. And the once carefree Lady Macbeth is herself consumed, not by regret, but by the impurity of her crime. So that when we see her at the end of the play, 
she is sleepwalking and grasping her hand, saying in one of the most famous lines in Shakespeare, out damn spot, out I say. She further reflects that, even as she does not worry about the murder, yet the blood somehow infects her still, saying, what need we fear who knows it when none can call our power to account? Yet who would have thought the old man to have had so much blood in him? And she concludes, here is the smell of the blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. Oh, oh, oh. Thus, even as Lady Macbeth refuses to repent, in her murmurings, she brings home to the audience, to the reader, the spiritual fact. Sin defiles. It is a by Joseph Salavechik who noted that for the Bible, sin brings about two different spiritual states. The first is guilt. Guilt means one is responsible for the crime committed and that one is therefore deserving of judgment by God or by man. Thus, the brothers of Joseph, wondering why the mysterious man who served as vizier in Egypt was persecuting them, decided that this must be a providential punishment for what they did to their brother long before, saying to themselves, Aval ashemim anachnu, but indeed we are guilty for what we did. So that is guilt. But sin for the Bible also affects us in a metaphysical way, bringing about not only guilt, but defilement. Our soul can be soiled by sin. As Rabbi Soloveitchik put it, quote, sin also has a polluting quality. The Jewish view recognizes a state of impurity of sin, tumatachet. The entire Bible abounds in references to this idea of self-pollution, contamination, rolling about in the mire of sin. This impurity makes its mark on the sinner's personality. Sin, as it were, removes the divine halo from man's head, impairing his spiritual integrity, end quote. Now, of course, ladies and gentlemen, the unrepentant, murderous members of the Macbeth family are not candidates for repentance. But in the midst of their madness, in their wailing for the inability of water to cleanse their sin, Shakespeare gives us a description of the pollution that is brought about by sin. And the Bible itself, speaking of the sins of Israel, does use an allusion to cleansing waters in describing the purifying power of repentance. For the Bible, the response to sin by man must be twofold. First, atonement, which involves forgiveness from sin, but also purification, in which we turn to God seeking his help. And God, in response to genuine repentance, purifies us, removes the effect of sin from us. And it is this latter aspect of repentance that Ezekiel addresses here in our passage. Recall our discussion in the book of Numbers of the ritual of purification of one who has come in contact with death. Such a person cannot enter the temple without experiencing the sprinkling of purifying waters, which, as we discussed, must contain ashes from the para aduma, the red heifer. Ezekiel uses that ritual, the sprinkling of purifying waters, as a metaphor for what occurs at the hands of God during repentance. Thus, God says in verse 25, Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. Thus, through genuine repentance, purification from God is achieved. And I think that if Lincoln was fascinated with Macbeth, it is because the effects of sin was very much on Lincoln's mind. Though ultimately, I believe it was the Bible that guided Lincoln in thinking about how the effects of sin can be removed. 
In his second inaugural, Lincoln spoke of the Civil War as God's punishment for slavery. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Here, Lincoln speaks of guilt and punishment. The civil war, Lincoln is expressing, is punishment for slavery. And we all, Lincoln says, must pronounce what King David said in Psalms thousands of years ago, that the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The focus of the second inaugural is on guilt, punishment, atonement. But in his other famous address, Lincoln picks up on the other response to sin in the Bible, and that is purification from defilement. Lincoln said at Gettysburg, the brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus so far so nobly advanced. Lincoln's address at Gettysburg was a call to covenantal renewal, rededication to the proposition that all men are created equal, a new birth of freedom, sanctified by the Union soldiers that had died. If America was inspired by those soldiers, Lincoln was saying, then America could purify and sanctify itself. Lincoln was calling America to purification and sanctification, the likes of which it had not yet achieved. Sin for the Bible is a source of defilement, but with repentance, genuine repentance, can come not only purification, but elevation, sanctity. In Rabbi Soloveitchik's words, quote, True teshuvah repentance not only achieves kapara, acquittal and erasure of penalty, it should also bring about tahara purification from tumah, spiritual pollution, liberating man from his hard-hearted ignorance and insensitivity. And then Rabbi Soloveitchik also added, sometimes it makes man rise to heights he never dreamed he could reach, end quote. This is what Lincoln is asking of America, a new birth of freedom inspired by the Union soldier's sacrifice and sanctification. But how would this come about? As my friend Harold Holzer has pointed out to me, the original draft of the Gettysburg Address lacked the words that Lincoln in the moment instinctively asserted, under God, that the nation under God would have a new birth of freedom. Lincoln had come to understand that only if we see ourselves as under God can we understand that as a nation we are judged and punished, but only if we see ourselves as a nation under God could we as a nation not only repent, but achieve purification, elevation, and sanctification. And I, God says in Ezekiel, will sprinkle clean waters upon you and purify you from your sin. Only human beings can freely repent, but only God in response can remove the defiling effects of sin. Thus Lincoln adopts a profoundly biblical approach to the story of America, America which was called by Lincoln the almost chosen people. The story of the chosen people in the Bible is indeed a tale of failure and sin, but the prophetic critiques are always followed by prophets emphasizing the hopeful possibility of purification. Under God, purification is possible. Under God, hope after sin is possible. Ad is called by the Bible the Mikveh Yisrael, the hope of Israel. And the Mishnaic sage Rabbi Akiva famously noted that the word Mikveh, hope, can also be read as a reference to a Mikveh, a purifying pool of water. God stands ready to purify us as long as we have the courage to examine our faults and engage in repentance and achieve thereby resplendent purity. 
In another Bible 365 lecture this week, we will describe what is perhaps the most interesting impact of Ezekiel's prophecies on Lincoln. For now, we close by pondering how the biblical emphasis on sin goes hand in hand with the incredible opportunity for change, purification, and elevation, and how Lincoln, his interest in Macbeth notwithstanding, adopted an approach to America that was ultimately not about tragedy but hope. When Lincoln shared his views about Shakespeare with James Hackett, the actor, in turn, irresponsibly shared that private letter with others, and Lincoln was mercilessly mocked in the press for having the audacity to express a view about literature. Hackett wrote the president to apologize, and Lincoln replied, quote, Give yourself no uneasiness on the subject mentioned in that of the 22nd. My note to you I certainly did not expect to see in print, yet I have not been much shocked by the newspaper comments upon it. Those comments constitute a fair specimen of what has occurred to me through life. I have endured a great deal of ridicule without much malice and have received a great deal of kindness, not quite free from ridicule. I am used to it. Yours truly, A. Lincoln. The president who forgave his detractors ultimately spoke to his fellow Americans about atonement and purification of a much more profound sort, telling his countrymen in a terrible time that our capacity for atonement and sanctification is the ultimate source of hope. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.